0: And thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Failure and Redemption, How Science Saves Science by Dr. Megan Crawford and first broadcast live on the 9th of June, twenty twenty-two. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support.
1: Thank you. A lovely introduction. Um, I'm very happy to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. So I, as a scientist, realized that I kind of have an absolute unquestioned, if you will, bias um, like most of us that... Science is a language we use to find the truth about our reality. And um, maybe that's not necessarily the case. Maybe it is the case. We really should be questioning it. But when I realized I had this bias, um, I started really questioning the kind of science that we practice. And what I came to find out was that, of course, not everything that we publish is 100% what we present it as. Um, of course, sometimes there are errors, uh, some of them great, some of them small, some of them we find out and some of them we don't, at least not within our lifetimes. And um, in doing this research, I realized that the number one effort field people um, that exposed the <clears throat> failures of science we're other scientists. And there's one other job that does that, but I will get to that in the end, um, but largely scientists and using the scientific method to expose the failures of science. And I cannot actually think of any other field that um, has the same type of checks and balances that the field and pursuit of science has. So I thought it'd be fun to give this talk Um, to bring this, not so much tell you as, which is really common with talks, tell you something I'm an expert in, Um, you know, like the, we, we come in and we tell you things and then you ask us things based on our expertise. But I really wanted to facilitate this dialogue between us because this is pretty contentious. And, um, I know what my thoughts are and you're about to hear it for the next 45 minutes. Um but I'd really like to jar your thinking as well and see what you how you feel about these things, where you go with it because as I will show over the next, you know, 40 45 minutes, um, the very thing that helps science, the pursuit of science, the scientific method reach these truths that we do know and that we and at worst that we don't that we know that we don't know are the same efforts that help us expose the times where basically shit has hit the fan so let's get into it i'm just moving things around on my screen now Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. there we go screen is moved so <clears throat> when we think about science and failure Um, I think Paul, his name is Paul Virilio, but I probably said it wrong, he's Italian. He's famous with saying the invention of the ship was also the invention of the shipwreck. And that's the case with science. The invention, the discovery, the development of science was also the invention of bad science. But it's also the invention of good science and somehow brings his checks and balances to it. So... I feel the first part is going to be maybe a bit slow. So I'm going to rush through it a bit. And the last part is going to be exciting and crazy. And you're going to feel really weird about things. And um, that's by design. And I think that's exactly the nature of science itself. So bear with me in these first maybe five, 10 minutes, because I want to help you, I want to frame the reality around us that we don't often do unless you're like a historian of science or you are into the history of science and technology and things like that, that we really realize how incredibly young it is, our ability to even articulate our reality in a way that communicates to everyone else that takes on this assumption of capital T truth as opposed to little t truths. So this is an assumption that, I mean, um, it's not an assumption we pretty much are, are confident that Homo sapiens, our, C, our, our species, started about 300,000 years ago, we had a few migrations with assumptions like, you know, largely out of the continent of Africa that we know of it now, which is, yes, different, different, different. I'm not an anthropologist, <laughs> but what I'm saying is we had a few great migrations. What I'm getting to is the new World migration. And we're going to, and that takes us to about 10,000 BC, right up to this, this is a little tiny space. So we zoom in at about 10,000 BC, and this is where we first start seeing um, that we have access to. This is what's important. This is what we have access to at the time. Who the heck knows what's going to be discovered tomorrow? Um, In fact, I almost changed the talk today because something was just recently discovered and it's blowing everybody's minds. And it's because of, um, uh, uh, weirdly enough, receding coastal lines as opposed to intruding coastal lines, which goes with all sorts of uh, climate change. So we start seeing the first written... um, history of maths and astronomy around India and Egypt and Mesopotamia. And then that's where we start seeing the very first written, um, re- uh, uh, written truths that we, that feed into what we now call maths, mathematics, what well, feeds into what we call astronomy now, um, m- medical practices, things like that, that started around 3000 BC And then really took off in that last 1,000, 1,500 BC. So if we zoom into that little space there, 1,000 BC, we start seeing around Greece and India, uh, uh, again, explosions, albeit over hundreds of years in the grand scheme of things, we would call this an explosion of um, sciences. Because once we, whether you are in the camp of we have discovered maths or we have developed maths, once that was established, that became the language we use to understand the universe. Every single scientific pursuit reduces to maths one way or another. Please put your questions in the comments. Please, you know, happy to talk about these because I'm about to cover a whole bunch of topics that could be talks within and of themselves. And like I said, I'm going to kind of gloss over this thing. Um, Right around uh, 300 BC, we get the Hippocratic Oath. On this is highlighted because this is about the only thing in writing that we are aware of in all of science, science and maths that has been unchanged. Maths change all the time. Physics change all the time. Chemistry, rules, laws change all the time. Hippocratic Oath sort of underpins one path, A scientific pursuit, which is, we we usually um, ascribe that to um, or prescribe that to uh, medicine, but it's the only one that hasn't basically changed, which I find really powerful. And I always love talks about how and why, over thousands of years, we still feel this need to be morally um, protective to each other. But this is where we see heliocentric solar system concepts start being written down and recorded. Uh, We've got Aristotle in that time. And then we hit common time, what we call CE, right? Persia explosion, again, over hundreds of years, but we call it an explosion of scientific knowledge and technology, because we start getting optics, we start getting um, theories of motion and machines of motion. And um, then we hit the next, the last 500 years, let's see. And we, um, we this is when we start thinking, in modern times and contemporary times as an explosion. I note here in 1661 is the first time chemistry is ever published um, or, or appears in a published work that is separated from magic or religion or superstition or the supernatural or any of those labels that we have now, which they didn't necessarily of all the different um Cultures and societies that studied chemistry um, didn't necessarily use that these terms before, but this is the first. 1661 was the first time chemistry was ever published in a usable manual-type textbook that was separated from anything that wasn't the physical universe. So then we scooch on, and we've got um, economics pops up with here in... Um, in uh, in The Wealth of Nations with Adam Smith. That was 1776. And what I find interesting is this is what we call an explosion. We have criminology before we even have psychology, even though today we would say criminology is based on psychology. It actually came before psychology was established. We have um, shortly, almost immediately after psychology, we have eugenics pops up, we have phrenology pop up. We have all all these different things pop up. And to give you an idea of how close that is, not too long for that was the first cosmonaut, the first person in space was, you know, arguably not arguably was a generation from the uh, establishment of psychology, criminology, a uh, Darwinian evolution as um a, not a not a generation but a century of uh, from um yeah from putting people in space. So there's there's a whole theory about technical technological booms. But what's important with this whole lineage is this red line right here. This is when Karl Popper's book uh, was published, 1935 in German, and 1959 in English. This would, of course, be because of World War II, and it was the logic of scientific discovery which really established the theory of falsification. Before this line, the uh, the practice of science followed a type of confirmation verification methodology. Um, Popperian brought in falsification. This is what Kuh- in Kuhn's words, um, a true paradigm shift. Nearly everybody uses that phrase wrong, that's okay. It's so powerful and fun, let everybody use it wrong. But it's wrong paradigm shift means we changed our language we changed the way we view the world we change our morals our ethics our values like literally even the same language that was used before finds new meaning and you cannot connect lot law- in a logical path um, what came before and after this shift so instead of what came before, which was using inductive reasoning reasoning with evidence in order to prove a reality. Falsification considers the body of scientific knowledge not so much true, but rather not yet disproved. And that's the science we live in right now. We live in an asymmetric relationship um, with science where we can never prove, only disprove. There are plenty of criticisms Um, to the Popperian paradigm happy to discuss them later I'm not here to preach the dogma of Popperianism or Popperian science I should say only that it's important to understand where we stand right now in science so this is from a recent a paper that's about to be published by some other data scientists who are looking at um um, disagreement, of uh, publications that disagree with existing publications. So what happens is, if you're kind of lucky, uh, people know about you in science, and they publish something that says you're wrong, and you're an idiot, and we hate you. <laughs> and your work is so bad. And um, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, maybe they're just trying to make a name for themselves. Point being, that is absolutely part of the scientific method. You get your Work out your discoveries, what you feel are accurate interpretations of the data you gathered, and then other people judge it, and they, cr- they critically read through it. And <clears throat> what we find here, it, what this chart is showing is the percentage of articles published that disagree with existing articles based on... Um, the topics. So, this is how the authors um, divided the subjects. So, they had socio- uh, sociology and humanities, um, biology and health. Um, this is an average in the middle, of course, all, but it surprisingly is not uh, and it's not surprisingly located in the middle because it's the average, Um, life sciences and earth sciences, physics and engineering, and then mathematics and computation. And what we find is that as we move from the oldest um, practices in science, as we established with the timeline, or hopefully that I established on the timeline I just showed you, mathematics being the earliest written, um, recorded that we have found um scientific writing to the youngest which would be psychology sociology the humanities that exist now we also find that there seems to be a very real correlation i mean this is also mathematically supported that the younger we get the more um arguing and countering um opinions and and these are expert opinions and scientific opinions that come out published in in uh, all the journals And this makes sense. Um, The key here is that there is disagreement at all. Um, Scientists have a kind of culture of collective distrust. This is what goes, this is basically what science um, is motivated by. We like to think it's truth and it is. Pursuit of truth is absolutely one motivation. The reason why that's a motivation is because taking on the Popperian perspective, we don't really just trust whatever's in front of our face. We want to capital K know, we want to know what's going on, whether we can or not. So we just keep trying to know. So what happens is someone like me pops up six years ago, gives a talk about the greatest failures in science, and then comes back and says, I would like to take you on that journey of scientific failures. But in The other side of it, which is how we even know their failures, because nearly every, and and I'll bring up the nearly qualification there later, but nearly every scientific failure we know, if not every, is because other scientists have said, oh, that's great, you said that, I don't totally trust you until we have more validation, greater robustness. These are all words that exist post-Pauperian science, if you will. So that's what I'm going to talk with you today. I'm going to talk about some of the failures I spoke about before and tell you how we found all were failures and then the entire system of reality and science that brings us there. So with science, there are failures. Um, and failures can come from either the scientists themselves or the the application of the scientific method accidents almost always come from the scientists themselves i'm you know i'm just going to go on record and say it comes from the scientists themselves so we've got things like um penicillin um you know a scientist or just a curious person forgot to close a jar um thought, hey i see growth happening here later um, maybe thought they were making a heart medication for cardiovascular and instead they made an erectile, um, performing check that, that does beautiful for penises. Um, but that happens a lot. That happens a lot because we can't think of every possible scenario when we start doing it, even when we have what we think is all the chemistry, there's always surprises. And then capitalism takes over and says penises are more important than hearts, but, um, Believe it or not, the the research that went to Viagra was still extremely valuable, still is extremely valuable for cardiovascular diseases and is one of the number one um <clears throat> research studies or research efforts for modern day cardiovascular medicine. And then you have morbid curiosity because that's part of our species. We have morbid curiosity. You should bring in another speaker someday for talking why we have morbid curiosity in, um, in our species. But these include things like, um, experimentation on enslaved people, um, Tuskegee study. Uh, if anybody, if somebody doesn't know what that I'll talk about it later, each of these, by the way, is an entire topic in a talk in in and of itself, thalidomide studies. Um, that was a good example of sexism in, uh, science, um, methamphetamines, U S government and the, um, I won't, I do believe oh, well, a lot of a lot of militaries, but the U.S. military for sure. So I'll just speak for what I know. Lots of meth um, and amphetamine um, studies to keep their soldiers alive or uh, awake—not alive, but awake. And then of course, and then there's an entire talk I give on the Guantanamo Bay tortures, um, which were headed by um, psychologists. So that's dark. I'm not going to talk about any of those. Um, I just want to let you know, that's generally how I see um, the failures in science coming together is human versus methodological failure, accidents and morbid curiosity. Um, So let's get into the failures. I'm gonna give you some examples because I think they are some of the most fun examples possible. And more importantly, they're examples. I'm gonna go from the oldest one I could pick up lots of information on to the newest one that just hit my desk this morning. I did a screenshot of it because I thought "Mm, y'all might like it. Um, So this is Pilton Man. Some of you guys are definitely gonna know this person, also known as Dawson's Dawn Man because Of course, he named it after himself. (laughs) So, and let's note the year 1912. Remember, Popperian Science, which was um, uh, the science of falsification, came around the 1940s, around World War II. Um, Before that was the science of confirmation. If we find it, if we test it, um, and we're looking for it, and the results support what we're looking for, therefore true. You know, this is how you get things like hysterectomies being the wandering uterus and all sorts of crazy stuff um or hysteria not hysterectomy (laughs) Hysteria. So um, uh, Pilton Man was, quote unquote, discovered in a gravel pit. I mean, bones were discovered in a gravel pit in Pilton, uh, England in 1912 by Mr. Charles Dawson, who was a lawyer, a geologist, and what some texts refer to as an amateur antiquarian, though I think that's probably accurate. It doesn't seem like much of an insult, um, which is why he was out there digging for bones. Uh, One of the reasons, at least. And then Dr. Arthur Woodward, who was a paleontologist, and they found human remains alongside um, other animal fossils and stone tools. It was a legitimate, exciting discovery. And um, by by even today, you know, even uh, 110 years later, it's still considered a legitimate, exciting discovery. Hang on. So what happened, though, was if my screen works, um, Charles Dawson decided that he wanted to, well, actually we have no idea what Charles Dawson did. Recent forensic and um, patholo- pathological <laughs> is another name for it. A, a number of sciences came together over the last 100 years to figure out who was responsible for the absolute failure of the entire scientific community that was aware of Pilton men um, than um, for never discovering that it was a complete fabrication. First of all, it was part orangutan and part human, and they were um, put together with uh, putty. Um, science failed to conclusively debunk um, all the changes that Charles Dawson made to this um, Frankenstein fossil um, for more than 40 years. It was until the 50s. And, then, and notice that's right after um, Popper publishes um, both of his texts. And that's a span of 20 years of that publication, maybe 15 years. Um, this was done by, and what really what happened was Dr. Oakley um, wanted to, Dr. Oakley and Dr. Wiener Um, or Viner, probably Dr. Viner and Dr. Legros Clark. Um, they were excited about this. Um, I think Pilton Man was stored at one of the universities because they always are, usually it's Cambridge or Oxford and that's fine. That makes sense. They have the, they have the, um, the means for, um, protecting a lot of, um, artifacts. Um, and, um, Dr. Oakley wanted to test for fluoride because science begets science, begets technology, begets science. I mean, science begets knowledge, knowledge begets technology technology begets more knowledge more tech more so the ability so we understood what fluoride was and then we had just reached the stage in our evolution to understand fluoride testing as a means for age so dr oakley wanted to test it for fluoride using science and um they were finally allowed they were the first people allowed access to pilton down's Um, um, remains Oxford university. That's where he was stored Uh, or, or, uh, um, yeah, um, stored. And so they carried out their tests. Um, and that's when they realized the cranium appeared to belong to, um, one, but maybe two humans, they were about 50,000 years old. So fascinating in that sense, but the jawbone absolutely (laughs) belonged to a modern day orangutan. And that's what was very strange. And they were like, okay, so we have issues here. So we still have definitely one, maybe two people that are still, you know, tens of thousands of years old and the tools involved. But this may not be the missing link because you have to, I don't, I mean, this is not something we really speak about very much anymore. But in my childhood in the 80s, missing link was like the solid thing we were all looking for and the joke. And that was the same thing with um with science as well. The missing we're looking for the missing link. So Pilton Man have been promoted as that. Well, what had happened was um, Dawson, we assume, see, like I said, just recently they're coming to find out and zeroed in not so much um, Arthur Smith being in on the, um, the scheme, if you will, but Charles Dawson possibly alone and then just selling his story to Arthur Smith and Arthur Smith being the um, scientist um, vouching for it. So the teeth had been uh, filed down and some of them had fallen apart and been glued back together and pieces of the skull had been glued back together and reconstructed. And um, the, the the orangutan mandible um, kind of cracked. So that had been glued back together. So the whole thing. The whole thing, so I do believe the teeth were human, and the jaw was um, orangutan, and they had all been puttied together in various ways, and all of this had gone unchecked. It was just, yeah, this is the way, this is how it looks. They were still practicing the old science of confirmation science, which was, if this is what I think I'm seeing, and I have data, which would be the fossils, and... um, The false, the data seem to support what I'm thinking, then therefore it's true. So it took getting into Popperian science of falsification to, um, break that. And my favorite quote about this comes from, um, a Nobel prize winner, which will be on the next slide. It was considered one of the most audacious, fake, and sophisticated scientific frauds in the 20th century. And I, I, you know, if nothing else, well done, Charles Dawson, (laughs) Cause it was a hundred years after his death. I believe that even anybody was able to say, I think this might've been all Charles. (laughs) So, um, Dr. Um, let's see, was it Dr. Oakley may have said this, but, um, well, I really like this quote because it really sets the stage for everything we, any of us have ever been into, um, born born into today. As far as our knowledge of science, this is the founding one of the founding stepstones. Of, of how we view the world now through a scientific lens the study we carried out has opened our eyes our own eyes to the scientific rigor required to avoid being deceived in the same manner as so many were between 1912 and 1917 so we're still there today hin but in completely different ways you know and 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 that's why I also want to give this talk because we give so much credit to the scientific method. And I think it's because it's truly the only method slash tool we still have to understand our shared reality. Maybe not our individual reality, although it informs on that as well. And that's powerful. Um, We can't exist without that. <laughs> So 1953, we start seeing the establishment of what is later called pathological science, which is the science of things that aren't so. So we've got pseudoscience, amateur science, so much like Dawson earlier, deviant or fraudulent science. So we're kind of getting into that malicious, uh, morbid curiosity, uh, junk science, which is always fun and makes the news a lot, and um, cargo cult science. If you've never heard cargo cult science, it's isn't it sounds cooler than... And I think it is, but it's a pseudoscientific method of research that favors evidence that confirms an assumed hypothesis. So, this is that's where the cult comes in. You know, I mean, that's where you start getting into conspiracy theories. You start off legitimate, and then it just goes batshit after that. And usually that's just somebody's personal opinion stepping in. Um, and what we have here is a quote from Irving Langmuir, who was a Nobel Prize winner chemist in 1932 probably butchered his name and i don't mean to but he said a scientist originally conforming to the scientific method unconsciously veers from that method and begins a pathological process of wishful data interpretation that's pathological science and pathological in this sense is um oh i thought i had defined it yeah which means compulsive or obsessive it's really really what you want to find so Um, in the, um, modern, more latest, uh, evolutions of psychology, we, we have, we talk a lot about cognitive biases and, um, heuristics. And in this sense, when we say wishful data interpretation, one way of defining that today is, um, confirmation bias. I'm looking for what I want to see and I'm ignoring everything else. So we have these things. I, I, I'm I going to go back. I like, I clicked too fast. I like that. I put this up as an example of sci-fi. I think sci-fi is one of the greatest things we have. It's It allows us to what if scenario our way through um, using the scientific lens um, when we don't have the technology that allows us yet to explore it. So probably the most shining example is Jules Verne with helping with imagining um, some of the realities, uh, as well as um, the existence of um, spaceships, submarines, um, right? Obviously, everybody likes to think of time travel. <laughs> I love it. Maybe. We'll see. That sounds scary and horrible. Um, we have had a on-again, off-again um, Facebook complicated relationship with Fusion and Fission. Um, and then there is... Um, you again the us military being absolutely fertile grounds for um trying out pathological sciences but the truth is we shouldn't turn our noses up at what we later establish as a pathological science because at the time it was just a science of unknown we were just testing can we know this and this is a cute movie it's dark it's um legitimate in a lot of ways and i think in a lot of ways people don't realize it's legitimate um <clears throat> but listen to some definitions of pathological science and see how many things right now in our world that hit the media or is like social media too every day that fit this this um these definitions so pathological science the maximum maximum effect That is observed is produced by a causative agent, so all legitimate so far, of barely detectable intensity. And the magnitude of the effect is substantially independent of the intensity of the cause. That's super dry. Let's try something a little easy. There are claims of great accuracy. So it's like, this is amazing. It'll have the biggest return you've ever asked for. Uh, fantastic theories contrary to experience um, are suggested. So I know this sounds crazy, but right? Criticisms are met by ad hoc excuses. Another term for that is cherry picking. Um, and then the ratio of supporters to critics rises and then falls gradually to oblivion. So that's the longitudinal validation of it. So first you have a lot of supporters and a few critics, and then it goes to a few supporters and a lot of critics, and eventually all you've got is a couple people in a pub with their beer. <laughs> and, and that's all of us to an extent, but that's, those are definitions of pathological science. Um, and then we get into fraud. Now, fraud goes into failures of the scientist as opposed to the science. I like like my I, I may have said this earlier, but I wasn't I'm not going to talk about the morbid curiosity because it's just not we can talk about a if you really want to. I, I have no problems with that. I just don't want to spend time forcing everybody to necessarily have to listen to some of the most grotesque things in our history. So, let's go into how shitty a scientist is yeah. <laughs> without morbid curiosity good old-fashioned fraud. So this study got, this is the study that catalyzed my interest into understanding not only the path of science that I practice now, the research I conduct 24-7 pretty much, but um, also realizing that there's nobody out there greater than the other scientists to help expose scientists because we're pretty much all the time trying to expose any frauds we come around, even if we don't know their frauds. So the study was all about changing people's mind. And this had to do with Proposition 8 in California. So Prop 8 was a state constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage that passed with a 52% majority in 2008 and was repealed in 2013. This bolstered an absolute ass load of studies at all levels in all disciplines, because it was California and even in 2008, California was still considered the liberal capital of the stupid world. If, I mean, that's the way they thought of it, but certainly the U S if you don't look at Hawaii. <laughs> um, so the fact that they passed a um, heterosexual normative, um, marriage uh, law only kind of blew everybody away. And I'm not going to get into voting um, legitimacy behind that, you know, like maybe only conservatives vote kind of idea, but it was repealed. Um, what was that? 2013, that's five years later. I mean, there were works to repeal it before it was even voted in. <laughs> so, <clears throat> what? So, this guy came around, Michael LaCour, La, LaCour was one of many, many. Um, budding scientists who said this is what i want to look at i want to look at how we went from all the narratives saying yeah the votes there's no way prop 8 is going to pass the majority of people are pro um um freedom for marriage um and uh to um no the majority of the people who voted are not so he wanted to look at what happened what changed their minds and what changes people minds at a fundamental level? Adults, specifically, we're talking about adults. So he um, uh, secured his PhD candidacy in, um, at UCLA, and his hypothesis was active contact has the potential to both reduce hostility toward outgroups and to change attitudes on divisive issues. So he's building on existing theory, the in-group, in out-group theory. And um, the, he went about by um, first doing an online survey to canvas the neighborhood. So first he had to find out where the existing opinions were geographically speaking. And then um, he used that to then go door to door, ask everybody, basically, um, what's your opinion, and use a very specific method that he had designed um, with his supervisor um, that was more of a conversational method to see if human connection in a sense will change people's minds so he paid them 10 he paid every participant ten dollars for participating in that first face-to-face door knocking um uh, uh um after he surveyed the city to find geographical opinions by neighborhood because he was basically i think using voting districting lines because that's how everybody voted basically if you're a conservative district yeah, went conservative. There were no surprises there. So he paid them ten dollars to start with. So it was about eight pounds. Um, Two dollars if they referred somebody else to the study. So they were using like a snowball method, which is pretty much what every um, field experiment is. I did. We can talk about the COVID research I did later. Nearly every COVID researcher out there that was measuring people that wasn't medically involved did snowball method just like this. And then he added the crumb de la crumb, which was a follow up survey to see if they if their opinions if they change their opinions did they preserve that opinion change and if they didn't change their opinions was there like a sleeper effect which is a legitimate thing that our brains function with and did they uh, change their mind later so we added this longitudinal element which is like the one of the gold standards of psychology and 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 human measurement and so he paid them $5 for follow-up in 2008 terms, in 2022 terms, um, that's a lot of money, 10 bucks for the first shot. I mean, you're gonna get a lot of people volunteering. And that's the assumption, right? That was a lot of money, 50 questions. He asked them in the survey, Two, concern gay marriage. So this is very common in psychological research. This is very common in in economic research. What you do is if you don't want the people, if you don't want your participants to know what you're trying to measure because you want... Um, to try and avoid certain noise from certain uh, um, uh, performance bias, you ask a whole bunch of questions. And um, they all ask about different things. So people can't quite pinpoint, it's not necessarily deception, and that you're not lying to them, you're just trying to find out what their raw opinion is about things. I guarantee you, the other 48 questions were also important things that they were measuring, because we don't go out and well, ethically, we're not really allowed to collect data that we're not going to then um, analyze and report somewhere so often you get several researchers together that will put all their questions into one because that's a huge survey that's just monstrous and then this they run with their own questions and everybody was able to get an um a an, uh, non-performance bias low performance bias response that takes a lot of manpower to get or person power to get people out into the field knocking on doors across california even across one neighborhood of one city is absolutely monstrous. So he went to the leadership lab at the LA LGBT Center in, L- well, in LA, and he hired a bunch of canvassers, trained them how to canvas, how to do the survey. And then they went out. His sample size was an astronomical 9,507 people completed this study. That is unheard of. And it was like people were absolutely shitting themselves, excited about this. So the results he found were that um, when voters talked to straight canvassers, so the canvassers identified themselves. That was part of the training. They identified their sexual orientation, if you will. Um, the voters changed their opinions. So the straight can the entire thing was to see can we get people to to agree with um, same sex marriage with marriage equality is what we call it now. At the time they called it same sex marriage. Um, so everybody was basically going for the same thing. So we're looking at voters who didn't agree or were on the fence, right? And um, they found if they talked to straight canvassers, they changed their opinion. But it only lasted for a couple weeks. So when they did the follow up. Those people had kind of gone back to their old opinion and the follow-up was six months later. So that that's a long enough time to have a lot of influences of the media, your family members, all that kind of stuff. But um when the voters talked to non-straight canvassers, um, their and their opinions changed, they changed—oh, I'm sorry, the follow-up was a year later, so it was 12 months, not six months. Their opinions stayed changed. And check this out. These are the numbers he reported. For those voters, the numbers um, before the canvassers talked talk to them— 47% of the voters supported gay marriage. Immediately after the canvassing, it jumped six points higher. And then a year later, it increased even more. So it had this compounding effect where it was 62% of those who did change their mind continued to change uh, uh, preserve that longitudinal thing. So another way of saying it was short-term opinion change had a positive 15% for gay marriage. I'm using the language at the time and I really should update these slides um, because now it's it's more accurately referred to as uh, marriage equality, but long term was also 15% of an increase overall. So um, this guy, everybody excited this ended up in science this this study got published so freaking fast but it was well written too if you read the study as far as like scientific writing goes and they nailed it so um i have no idea what time we're at but we're close to the end but i just want to get through this study so um um let's see the results were fantastic two postgrads came in from another uh California University, and they got with his supervisor, Dr. Green, and said, We want to repeat this study. And the first thing they ran into, oh, I forgot, the control group was 3%, but the first thing they ran into was they were not getting the 9,000, nearly 10,000 sample size just in the uh, survey alone. Usually, if you send out an solicited survey, the, um, the going rate is about 10% return. If you're really lucky, it's a 30% return, but it really, really, really goes over that one-third um, range. It's it, you'll you usually ping-pong between 2 and 10%. Um, which can be a lot if you're surveying, say, a million people, um. But they were down at um about what w- almost one tenth of what um Lacour was at. So they were like, okay, this is sus. Um, let's see what else they went and um started talking to the L.A. LGBT center, and they were like, no, we never heard of Lacour, and they're like, mm, fuck what? Because they went to go ask them, how did you do? How did Lacour? do all these things. And they said, well, we've never heard of this guy before. So they went to LaCour's supervisor and he was like, yeah, okay, well, maybe there's something wrong. Let's go, let's just follow the money because he paid 9,000 people, um, a minimum of $10. So that's 90,000 cash on hands that he had. Everybody, you know, a lot of people get scholarships and grants, but you don't just have cash on hand for things like that. So they went and asked him, and the whole time he had said he had his own funding. And as it turns out, he was like, uh, I can't find the paperwork on that. I can't find the paperwork on that. So as it turned out, he never did send any surveyors out because he never talked to um, the uh, L.A. Times. They'd never heard of him at the LGBT Center. Um, he, when they said, okay, well, show us your original survey to show us how you demographied, I think that's a word, um, L.A., Uh, He never did send out a survey. He never did have the funding. Um, Obviously, the questions he delivered and the paper, like he has all the files for having developed these, never sent them out. And um, in the end, that means he never surveyed anybody. He, the best guess is that he started. It was really difficult as it happens. You feel very pressured as a PhD and um, it, you Instead of trying to find another way, he just fabricated everything, Um, which means there was no short-term opinion change. There was no long-term opinion change. So, of course, there was no control group, and that means there was no Ph.D. And even to this day, Michael LaCour only speaks through an attorney. It was Dark days in science. They, uh, this is his study. It still can be found on at Science, um, the publication online. When contact changes minds, an expert on transmission of support for gay equality. And if you look here, this is what happens. Journals won't necessarily remove all the dark underbelly of their reality and their past what they'll do is they put this up this article has been retracted it'll give you a link an active link and the date to uh, uh, when it was retracted and if you notice up here it was re- it was published december 2014 he started that research in 2014 claimed to have done all that work in less than a year wrote it up with his supervisor who had, who just kept taking Donald green is, is this is his supervisor who believed him because this guy, you know, Michael was out and that's what you do as a PhD. You work by yourself and you lose your mind and you pull your hair out and you become, you learn, you develop some level of addiction or alcoholism or something. And then you, you know, become a doctor. And, um, he, LaCour said he had a team of people. He had his funding. So that's how my Supervisor treatment, not all supervisors alike that way, but mine was his is uh was um Donald Green. And so they give you a retraction, it's all here, you can go and find it. Um there's the DOI. I'll share it with you if you want. That's the direct object identifier. Every scientific publication, including um, backdating, all have what is called a fingerprint. And and so you can put in the DOI and find exactly uh, where this article is. And now nearly everything is open source, again, going into this, you know, how does science save science? So there you go. So the question is, um, just because the data don't exist, though, here's the follow-up. Just because the data don't exist to demonstrate the effectiveness of this method of changing minds doesn't mean the hypothesis is false. And now the real work begins. That was his supervisor saying that. Michael disappeared into oblivion. Never to date has reproduced any of the things he says. He still claims his innocence, his complete innocence. But he has still to date never produced anything other than the final charts and graphs that he uh including the publication. So what happened? What happened to the changing people's minds study? Well, these guys came out David Brookman, Joshua Wakala, and Peter Yarna later. Um both the first two from UC Berkeley. These are the guys who started it. They said, "Well, we want to replicate the study." And um, they've applied it to abortion rights. They have tr- uh, applied it to transphobia study um uh, poly- um policies and immigration issues all across the us and look what has happened from scientists stepping in and saying hang on now i think that's science they built from that 2015 their study irregularities and liqueur so they first took time to systematically point out all the things that were, they never say wrong. They just say irregular or illogical. and then they read, they took the best parts of what LaCour said might work, which we all believed, obviously we wanted to believe this, that you can just talk to someone and you can change their mind. I mean, how many of us have had a really good conversation like that? And they modified the methods and then went through for the last 10 years studied. Oh, I don't know how many studies now. I'm just going to show you a few highlights. Durabil- dur- durably, so that's a longitudinal, reducing transphobia, a field experiment on door-to-door canvassing. So they took us good stuff and then tested it. The d- 2017, the design of field experiments with survey outcomes, a framework. So they developed a method based on all the work they had done to get to that point. The, so this would be f- four years of work. So they designed a method, a framework, for selecting more efficient, robust, and ethical designs. 2018, the minimal persuasive effect. So how what's the least you have to do? for a campaign contact and in, in general elections, looking at 49 field experiments. So they went full blown. 2020, reducing exclusionary attitudes through interpersonal conversations. So this was one of the methods they found through their 40, more than 49 field experiments. These are the ones that were published in um, efforts in the method they created for greater efficiency, robustness, and ethicalness based on LaCour's original idea of door-to-door canvassing. Again, three field experiments with that. And then 2021, that was the last one I saw when I made these slides, which narrative strategies. So now they're looking at different narrative strategies. Who says what, when to whom, because it's not the same for everybody. So look at all this science that has come out from scientists saying this was bad science. I'm so used to talking in front of people. So this is where I get like feedback. So I'm just "Ah!" (laughs) blah, I'll just be loud. Um, So what do we have? Who saves science? Well, science really, since we have this asymmetric relationship, because we are in the Popperian paradigm, where we only look at what we can disprove, and then it's reasonably assumed to have some level of existence until we can disprove it otherwise. um, We have a lot science i I do speak with the royal we because i think this is a human level thing not just a scientific level thing but we have an entire system of checks and balances that are constantly changing and that's why this is where i you're going to see the screenshot from today that came in my mail so here we have the innocence project started in the u.s where because science begets knowledge begets technology that begets more knowledge right dna technology. We cannot. We, we learned what DNA was. We learned how to understand DNA. We had the Human Genome Project, split that crap up, got into CRISPR. And now, well, before CRISPR, actually, we've got the Innocence Project. It was now that we can test DNA, we're going to go through all of these buckets of boxes of evidence from anybody sitting on death row, basically, and seeing do they belong on death row or were they wrongly convicted. Um, at the time when I made these slides, Dallas County in, um, where Dallas, Texas is, um, was the number one county to have the most, um, people who had been wrongly convicted, um, exposed and, and, and ultimately freed due to the innocence project, not necessarily because Dallas had wrongly convicted the most people, but because they kept the best records. So the records are still there to test the DNA. And then we have um, Open Science Framework, OSF. And they have an entire re- reproducibility project specifically in the field of psychology. And Open Science Framework is where we create these um, dashboards. You can; These are um, all the names of contributors. It keeps going, going, going. I think I'm on this as well. Um, it has its own DOI just for... Oops, sorry. Let me go back. Just for the project, oh, my God, I went back too far. Let's do this. My computer's, like, having issues thinking, we'll make it. We'll make it. And um, they've got their own wiki and stuff. They put the data there. They've got the files. Um, anything they run, they put there. And it's there. And the idea of OSF is it's there for life. You can you can put your things on a moratorium, if you will, but um, it's for open publications both pre- um, pre-publication, and if you never get it published, it's there for anybody to read. This was this was global. The and, uh, the, the reproducibility project still going, and then this is what came across my my um, email today. I'm going to read it to you, but I tried to do some highlights. So this is from the Judgment and Decision-Making Society. They're going to be doing a virtual journal on transparency, reproducibility, and generalizability. This happens all the time. This has just happened to come through my desk today. Um, We've got... Virtual special issue is looking at um, they want studies involving any of the following topics. Plus, they leave themselves open for topics they haven't thought about. Um, this includes registered reports and even pre-analysis plan submissions. So we've got replication studies, pre-registrations, and pre-analysis. So if you haven't made it to a publisher yet or you've got the data but you've yet to analyze it. Um, registered reports. So that's the thing with OSF is you can pre register the methods you're going to go through in order to go through an ethical panel or, or in order to have a, um, it's kind of like blockchain, you have an unmodifiable record of what you declared you were going to do before you did it. So if you change your methods later, you have to justify why those changed, but it really holds you to an an honesty system as opposed to an honor system. Systematic reviews and meta-analysis, this is another one of those gold standards in science where you compare all the existing studies in the field on this one topic and see how they... All line up together. I think it's one of the sexiest things I've seen with quantitative data, at least. Um, collaborative and multi-lab studies, which is pretty much how any lab functions anyway. Studies attempting to validate previous findings and then some. Open science and transparent research practices. So looking at methods that have been implemented, you don't necessarily need the data for those methods. I'm actually in that field right now. Um because of the uh, virtual world we had to move into with COVID. Data sharing, open data, open code. So we share our our coding with each other as well, and open access solutions. So this is the final one as well. It's retraction watch. If we, um, if you know, going back to LaCour's paper here, this uh, showed, this is his publication. This article has been retracted. Well, what happens is this team right here says, um, this this was started by I don't remember who started this and I really should have his name. Oh, there it is, Adam Marcus and Ivan Oransky. Um, it's a whole team of people, but like we turn each other in. It sounds really dark that way, but it's not like we're seeking each other out. It's just a, a journal will re you know somebody will have been found to usually just accidentally wrong. It's usually accidentally wrong, but all the same, fraudulent or otherwise, they the journal will say okay we're retracting this and Retraction Watch. We'll get an alert and they post them here and you can go and it's an, it's a repository an archive of every retracted paper. And I mean, is I really highly recommend going there retractionwatch.com. If you're interested in reading not only what it took, what study was retracted, what it took to retract it, but also sometimes the egos of the scientists that jump up and go and, and try to fight the retractions. It's, it's like, it's just enjoyable sometimes. So here we have medical school Dean up to five retractions. So usually that means like there was one method or one huge database where they just generated a bunch of papers from that. Um, and then there's a paper claim to describe the first potent and specific anti COVID-19 drug. Now it's retracted huge numbers of don't, don't mistaken frequency for um, veracity, if you will, in a retraction watch, everybody was publishing COVID papers, everybody. In fact, all the journals kind of lowered their standards and said, we will publish anything because we don't know what's going to happen. So it was a spaghetti against the wall kind of thing. And then we've got stolen manuscript. This I love this. the plagiarist, sorry, the plagiarist begs for forgiveness as another group plagiarizes the same work. And so that's a key one if you want to read that um, as a really common one. And then widely touted abstract on ivermectin and COVID-19 retracted. So this is one of those like Snopes kind of sites that I highly recommend. Um, And that's the end of my talk. This is science and the relationship at best is complicated, if you were ever to ask. So thank you for listening. I hope it wasn't too boring. I really look forward to the Q&A.
2: hi everybody and welcome back i hope you had a nice break there and we will come back with our q a from dr megan crawford so um first of all megan had something that she felt that she wanted to mention that wasn't mentioned during the talk so i'm going to hand back over to megan to let her talk about that
1: yes it's really fast what i failed to say i said this at the last talk but um My whole spiel about how scientists and the scientific method and the pursuit of science are probably the greatest tool we have and the greatest method we have right now to help uh, expose um, fraudulent, bad, or accidental science. The other... area the other sector the other field that that also does it is investigative journalism really it's not politics they kill science it's not capitalism it kills science money helps like don't get me wrong money helps but capitalism doesn't it's investigative journalists they are the only other field that i have ever run into that say hang on now wait a minute (laughs) and so i forgot to say that and i really wanted y'all to know that
2: And we've had a couple of fantastic investigative journalists talk for us. And absolutely, you can see the rigor that goes into their work and how it really is science-based. So we will start with the actual Q&A now. So uh, the first question comes from Kat, um, who asks, what do you think is more damaging to the public trust of science? Accidental bad science or out-and-out fraud?
1: Um, I think, um, and I do believe the data back me up on this, um, I think fraud Um, is far more damaging than accidental because fraud involves several levels of active um, support, an entire support system that is actively aiming for the same fraudulent goal you know the whether it's your research assistants and your entire team or it's your colleagues supporting you i have a lot of examples of that but i don't necessarily have all the names accurate so i don't want to give them but like for example there is um one historian i believe she was a a historian at nyu and she's still there and she's head of the department and um, she was brought on. She's very intelligent and her work is quite legitimate. We used to be quite legitimate. And um, she used a lot of um, pull to get all of her colleagues who agree with her way of telling history and historical facts of their field, historical knowledge of their field into editorial positions at the journals into teaching positions at her university and other universities and influential teaching positions. And that's, that's what fraud looks like accident. I mean, that it, it, it's like what we say with plagiarism, usually that's accident, you know, and, and, and when it comes to accidents, they're very quickly, um rectified it's like oops i did it again
2: <laughs> and, that, yeah. and that's what i was thinking is also when it's a mistake the publisher comes out uh, or the author comes out and goes i made a mistake it, mm-hmm. whereas when it's fraud like the one you mentioned in your talk he just keeps going i'm innocent i'm innocent now mm-hmm. he hasn't come out to say i got it wrong therefore people will still cite that people will still say that it's well he's just yeah. being silenced people don't want yeah, whereas with the genuine, genuine accidents from my understanding, most of them just come out and go, oops, made a mistake.
1: Mm-hmm. And just like, just like that, um, f- the, the chart I showed at the beginning showing the number of, um, the percentage of articles in each field that have countering articles to them. Um, you know, a lot of those countering articles, they were followed up by other countering articles by the original authors. That said, yeah, okay. your article showed us how we got it wrong, but it's not in the way you said it. It's in this other way, you know.
2: So um, moving on to the next question, which carries on very nicely from Nadia, which is, um, is bad science or fraud more prevalent in a specific field or is it universally distributed across all fields?
1: I've got the I've got the questions over here on the side. So let me look. Is bad science or fraud more prevalent in a specific field or is it uniformly distributed? I don't know. I really, I, I absolutely don't know. We want to think that maybe it follows along the path of, I mean, I, I my knee jerk reaction is a lot of knee jerk, a lot of people's knee jerk reaction, which is there's less fraud in the field of mathematics than there is in say the field of psychology because psychology, I mean, let's reestablish that the science we're practicing is not even a hundred years old. Okay. It's not even it's 70 something years old. That's, Everything we know about science as as a practice and a, and a and a tool for understanding truth is less than a century old. So psychology was birthed around the 50s, um, and, the, and then it just went, like, <clears throat> no the 20s, I think, and then it just went behavioralism and cognitive, and now we're into, I don't even know what we're into now, and you had Skinnerianism in there and all sorts of things, and... I think you're gonna maybe run into what was that question again um i I would assume you'd run into more like bad interpretations of reality in the newest practices of science as opposed to the oldest ones but i really don't know
2: um we'll move on to a question from um paul also known as pictical um what role do you think deliberate hoax papers eg socal play in keeping scientific research honest
1: oh then so we were talking about this earlier i mean um so for those who might not know and i wasn't really i couldn't remember either and so we all looked it up so socal and i'm not sure how to say his name but his name um he's it's known as the socal affair and his name is alan socal and he was maybe is if physics professor at NYU and UCL and he purposely submitted a manuscript to a very prestigious journal that was garbage it was a word salad and it got published it went through the peer review process it got published and um then he came out and said haha I tricked you I think that's how it went that
2: was my Go ahead, Dave.
1: What was it? No, no, I was like,
2: yeah, that's my interpretation of it
1: as well. Yeah. And um it was showing it was um it actually birthed an entire then um multiple efforts of other people going in and publishing garbage word salads to see if their field was as susceptible or usually it's their journal. They're looking at specific journals with those because i I do remember ones in like Specifically, as we we were talking about earlier, it was evolutionary psychology. Um, And I was so, I could not have been more grateful that those garbage, purposely, purposeful garbage um, studies were um, submitted because it showed, it really revealed one of the greatest weaknesses in the scientific method. And should I show, Dave, should I show the scientific method?
2: Up to you. Yeah, I, I, we've got kay. a very nice slide that will show it. So yes, I'm sure if we give our text a few moments, they'll be able to get that sorted out for us.
1: Okay, so hopefully you stick around for this one. I want to zoom through it. But um, do you see my screen?
2: Uh, I do, but bear with us a moment. Um, I'm sure I'll get, we do see it now.
1: Okay, everybody sees my screen. So really fast, the scientific method, I just call it the process, we usually just think it's like um, observe, hypothesize, um Collect, test, and interpret. But that really is just these two people right here with their beakers. That's that representation. The scientific method is an entire effort of, first, I just think of something that probably annoys me often with the cases. And then you go through, do you ask your, your friends, you ask your colleagues, you go through um ethics approval, which is a whole circular method in and of itself, back and forth ethics. Then you maybe, once then you finally get to test it, you come all the way around, blah, 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 blah. blah blah, blah. And right here, you've got this peer review method, which is you submit your manuscript to a journal. The journal then gives it to, uh, now they have kind of like a machine learning thing doing this, but they pick up your keywords, they send it to the editor of the many editors they have, that um, hopefully hit within your range of keywords so they'll know a little more of what you're talking about. But again, this is very, like, there's a lot of noise in the process. But that's why you try to submit to the right journal, first of all. Because if you don't submit to the right journal, they're just, the keywords won't come up and they reject you right away anyway. So lost process. But then that that editor decides which other people in your field that they're going to contact and ask to review. And you have a minimum of two and I've heard of up to 10 and, and it's not always the first two they ask. I mean, sometimes we're busy or we're on holiday or, you know, whatever maternity leave. And so they just keep sending out the shout out to, they get a minimum of two reviewers and then those reviewers sometimes they'll they'll look for five because some people won't review and then it's like okay we got at least three back we're going to send that those reviews to the author of what they think no i'm going to go on record and say no manuscript is accepted unedited by any journal there's just not that's just not possible not even the the what was it the so-called one was accepted unedited by the way <laughs> the
2: although
1: um, i will actually. Back.
2: Quickly mentioned that uh, Dr Grimbert has just popped in the chat, that far, actually tried multiple times and most journals rejected his spoof paper. He kept going until he found one with poor enough peer review to prove that it could be done. I didn't know that in advance, so thank you for that, Dr Grimberg.
1: That is brilliant. And that see, and when it comes to journals, what well, we have are ranked journals from four star to let's go with zero. But you, you want your job kind of depends on how high the journal is ranked, where your stuff is. So it is very common you start at the highest one. Um, you think you're going to get it, and So you don't want to waste too much of your own time if you think it's like a just a simple study. But you start at the highest one, you go through every rejection, you feel you're worthy of getting, if you're going to get them, then you go to the next one. And and often, unfortunately, I say zero, because the worst journals out there are the predatory ones. Because like any market, remember how I said capitalism doesn't help science? <laughs> Any market that's out there um has b- becomes a black market at some point and there are predatory journals and they'll take you for whatever. So there you go. That's this is what I wanted to show about scientific methods. You have like all I mean, you can go around this like reviewer reviewers sending back suggestions and then you send back your edits. That can go, I've heard, well, I've personally heard up to four times. Um after that point, I think somebody just leaves. <laughs>
2: Somebody gives but, up.
1: Yeah, so what was the, I can't remember the question, but I hope that it was
2: just about what role did you think oh, you pay in right. science research, so, honest.
1: So Sokol um, exposed this part right here the reviewers exposing them, maybe we're really freaking tired or we don't care, or, you know, we don't know what we're talking about, or we were the wrong reviewer assigned by the editor or our, and when I say wrong, it's not even by the editor sometimes. And this is a big issue. Sometimes editors will contact the, 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 leader in the field or the person known in their field. Um, and then that person will give it to their, postgrads you know their masters and PhD students to so do the reviews so that's what this that those 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 um I wouldn't even call them frauds I would call them scientific methods in and of themselves exposing yeah. the failures of the scientific method
2: They're an experiment to yeah. see what they can get away with mm-hmm. and, and they published it <laughs> <So> they should <laughs> and they published it yes yeah. and um, we'll move on to a question now from Nadia which asks is academic pressure and funding preferences one of the main reasons for bad science and how can this situation be improved? It's academic pressure and funding preferences.
1: Um, I
2: it's would the publish or perish type thing, isn't it? I
1: yes. Guess. So publish or perish means you publish um, at least the minimum required in your academic job or you get fired. And my job set on that, too. And it just, you know, like any other job, depends on how much your boss is going to push this on you. Um, but publisher Parish. Um, I absolutely believe that. I believe that some people want prestige and prestige brings money. Who wants prestige without money? I don't know. Maybe they exist. I've never met them. I, if you've heard of them, let me know. But, um, I'm thinking of like the Jordan Peterson's of the world's, you know, legitimate, educated, multi, I have as many, I think I have one more degree than Jordan Peterson. I'm just throwing that one out there, <laughs> but like, you have to have multiple degrees, right, to get to this point. And it it was pretty clear, you know, at some point, some of these people just want to be cult leaders. That's prestige. His money skyrocketed. And there's an, a direct correlation between that, you know, as the money raised and the the, the doo-doo that was coming out of his mouth. <laughs> and, and And I can't think of a single person out there who got prestige and not money and was like pushing the cult mentality of bad science um i think a lot of people now if we go to the more say less less malicious side of bad science which are people who want to keep their jobs and they're desperate for it and we write these proposals we have to get money publish or perish the precursor that is is um funding or perish (laughs) So you have to get I was sitting, I remember to give you an idea of what it means to funding or parish. I we got a grant. It was $12 million. It was from the US Department of Defense. Um, it was a four year study. I was talking with my supervisor at the last university. We still talk, we're very close. And um, he said, Well, when was the last time you filled out a grant application? And I said, I don't need one, I have an a research job, and it's like even if we suck at it, it's four years and I get a full income. And on my CV, I get to put that I was part of a $12 million funded project. And he goes, yeah, but that's two years old. You need to keep showing that you're getting funding for something, even if it's for the same project. And that was an eye opener. And then I started looking at everything we were doing completely differently because I had to use what we were doing as evidence of my ability to be an ongoing productive scientist. To get the next funding. Yes.
2: To start your next project which will then yeah. prove you're ready to do your next and ongoing. So even when you haven't finished your project, you're already thinking of the next one because you need to get that funding in place before it's finished.
1: Yeah, you're only as good as your last achievement. And that even sucks. <laughs> and we'll move on to a question from Kat.
2: And this is a two-part question. I think they are very separate answers. So the first one is, what's your science fail? And the second part is, what and which science fail do you think is the most dangerous? So we'll start with the first one. What's your favourite science fail? What What's the one that Pops up to mind when somebody says, "Talk to me about science papers." What's the one you'd pick?
1: Cheesy, crazy, lemon squeezy. Um, God, I, I. This is where I like being in a room. I would love to hear everybody else's, you know, ideas because I think we'd all start sparking ideas of of all those failures. Um, the the I'll I'll start with the last one. I think the big, the most damaging, dangerous failure in science is patriarchy. I okay. cannot tell you how all of science is based on wealthy white men and nearly everything we know is on based on evidence data gathered from a very homogenous group of people over largely the 20th century and we even have a name for it now it's called weird it's white educated industrial rich democratic the 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 data we have of human-based and even even economic-based uh, realities, they are realities. But we generalize that to the whole world, and they shouldn't be. And that's become a very real thing. We're now in that evolution of scientific discovery, which is acknowledging the demographics of our data. So, I and and to me, that completely births from xenoph- xenophobic patriarchy. <laughs> so, I think that's the most damaging because I think we've missed out on. Centuries, even if we go back to one century of science, you know, even if we stick within Popperian science, just a, a near century of valuable evidence that we've complete, completely missed out on. Um, and we've des- designed our entire world, generations and generations from that. What is my favorite failure, though? I mean, Lacour was pretty good. <laughs> I cannot stress enough how much his paper shocked everybody. Like, and it wasn't just, like, his paper came out. Like, he was working on this for the whole year. And Prop 8 was huge because California was a testing ground. And, yeah, it, w- it was a big, big, big deal. But I can't say that's my favorite. I'll stew on this one. If anybody has a favorite, throw it in somewhere. I, I, Let us know.
2: I know the one that comes to mind for the most dangerous for me is Andrew Wakefield. Who? Um, Andrew Wakefield and the uh, autism from vaccines study. Yeah. Um, that to me has caused huge repercussions years and years later. And again, he's one of those people who hasn't backed down.
1: No, And you can find his work on retraction watch.
2: You can indeed. An absolutely fantastic website. Um, have a look at it. It is really, really good website. Um, -hmm. but yeah, absolutely. But it still keeps being cited even though it's retracted.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and you know that, that chart I showed where it went from like, um, most, uh, uh, the, the field that has the most like, um, what what was uh, the word
2: Disagreement again? within the field.
1: Yeah, one? disagreement. And it and it goes down. Um the thing is, the almost none of the papers that the degrees disagreements were against are retracted. They remain published. It doesn't necessarily mean they're ba- wrong or bad. It's just, yeah, to be retracted fully from human knowledge never happens.
2: Um move on to a question from Anonymous. Um, it's very frustrating that retraction or even plain discredited papers still show available and get cited some, some website uh, sometimes will that ever change?
1: I don't know, but so, yeah, we were just saying that, I mean, cause the, I mean, okay. So think of it. I was married to a lawyer for a long time and boo. And, um, one of my favorite things about learning, um, about human decision-making, which really finally made a lot of the legal sense make, um, kick in, whether, especially if a jury, but even if you have a judge, is lawyers will do this thing where they will say something they know will be objected, uh, uh, um, they know will be uh, stricken from the record, and um, but they say it because they know that it will worm, it will earworm itself into all of our minds. They've now affected us with at least that knowledge. And you can't escape it. Like our ears don't shut off, unfortunately. So you can't escape it. And that um, I, I feel like that that is one of the reasons why um, it doesn't feel like it's ever going to change in any field that shares knowledge as a regular part of its reality um or its existence which is like science and education it, its whole purpose is to share knowledge um once it's out there it's out there it earworms into society into culture into your brain like it's there so yeah i, I feel like i probably have some I'm, I'm confident without even knowing which ones they are yet you know what i mean
2: there's so many things that you hear and you've heard them once and you you don't know whether you heard it. it's complete life or it's true you just yeah. heard it in passing and it sat in the back of your head as something i think i know
1: Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. Well, that's completely
1: wrong yeah um,
2: move on to a question from Vic who asks um, what percentage of non-scientists do you believe understand the scientific method
1: so percentage wise I would I would argue to say very low I'm just going to go for it I'm going to go with the, uh, the price is right Bob and I'm going to go with 1% <laughs> I, uh, I do not think like I showed y'all that 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 whole scientific method I only explained two blips on that, which was testing, right? And then the, the publication side of it and that entire uh, uh, flow chart that is just continuous because anything that's published, uh, one of the one of the measures we have as editors and reviewers of good papers, if you will, is that <clears throat> the conclusions are not only logical, for the flow of the argument made all the way through the paper, but that they help us jump off to the next point. So everything published kind of should have, it comes with this promise of here's the next thing, you know, maybe you'll think of something I haven't, but I'm going to give you s- some jumping off points. Right. So it is continuous. Um, but back to the question, I don't think anybody, I, I think if the average person, I think, Yeah, I think if the average person had even an inkling of the scientific method, it wouldn't be a necessary course in the first two years at university because we would just freaking know it, right? And because we have to go to a university to understand this level of just the scientific method, I think screams the fact that nobody really knows.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So um, we will move on now to uh, a question from Igor. Um, what will be better than the scientific method? Will it evolve into super science or will it be replaced by superior schmaiens? W-
1: <laughs> oh, there it is. What will be better than scientific method? Will it evolve into super science? So that's still hanging on to science, yeah. Or will it be replaced by superior schmians? I wonder. I've wondered about that too. Would we keep the same language? Because, I mean, we clearly have the same language from confirmation science that we studied um, as a, as a species two centuries ago and beyond, and earlier. I don't know when the word science came out. That was I have forgotten off the top of my head. I'm a couple glasses in, but um, yeah. I I'm trying to remember. I didn't I didn't know the year. There's a whole like what is it? Uh, Anyway, anyway, um, I'm going off on a tangent here, but um, I do think there's something better than the scientific method we're studying now only because we can identify some of the fallacies and falseness and failures of the scientific method we have now. For example, being in Popperian confirmation, uh, confirmation, the falsification um, scientific method, that means that technically unicorns exist. Um, and unicorns exist with as much likelihood as both of my children existed before I made them. You okay. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that's not, I, I use a very jokey example of that, but there's some really dark, dark corners if you take that logic in that direction. Um and, and because we have all basically, I'd say 99 point blah, 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 percentage of us agree that unicorns never did exist and do not exist now, then we all can agree. We all feel we can agree that that's a failure of that, of the Popperian scientific method. Um, but it, I mean, you know, a hard Popperian, Popperian, um, would be like, yeah, unicorns. Sure. You know? <laughs> And that is one of the reasons why most, if not all the scientists know, most of the scientists I know are truly actually agnostic or, or agnostic atheists, because we all understand that if you want to measure something that is non-physical, we don't have the tools for it. So we're not, we can't say with any accuracy that it does not exist. And even the question of what existence is, um, is, is up for grabs.
2: Yeah. I'm not even going to go near that one. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's way outside of my knowledge of um, having had you say some words there I'm going to read the next question but not answer it which is how many times can Dave and Megan repeat a certain phrase without stumbling the answer is we tested this in the break and I get to zero before I fail <laughs> so I am not going to try and do that because mm-hmm. I don't want to embarrass myself any further I mean if, if Megan wants to try it's up to her
1: <laughs> okay let's see so it's Quaperian Paradigm that's the one Okay. So I've got the rosy wine cheeks. Let's make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> um paparian paradigm, 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 Paparian paradigm. Paparian paradigm paparian there you go.
2: <laughs> I got that part. <laughs> that is way better than I did. As we saw in the break, I can't say it once. Which I wasn't is why counting. Avoided it.
1: I hope somebody was counting. I want that data. <laughs>
2: uh, I am sure one of our uh, listeners will have some lovely numbers for you there. Uh um <laughs> we will now move on to uh, something I can well we'll see if I can pronounce it. We'll see. Um, question from Igor, assuming we will not destroy ourselves very soon, do you think humanity will ever achieve some sort of scientific singularity?
1: I love the singularity argument. I love that. I don't I it's one of those things that makes me want to go back um, as a white man, largely. Um, to a lot of points in history to find out if that also was the unspoken undercurrent of of what we call enlightened times, if you will. But when we when certain civilizations reached the time where they could start thinking beyond just survival, you know, they started exploring maths and physics and and, and love. And, you know, all these things that take us beyond just the needs. I wondered when did when did we truly I we can point out when we started articulating the concept of singularity and everybody has their own take on that. And again, taking it back to sci fi, absolutely brilliant. What ifs throughout there. But um, what singularity? I mean, we want to think one is one is one, but it's not. And I just read a paper by a friend's dad. It was one plus one is three, and he has a crater on the moon named after him. And this guy is just like one of those. Like I want to think he's smart, but I'm also like hmm, maybe we're just he is he's smart, but his paper is just it makes you question everything you know. And it's a it's a maths paper, and it brings up this a uh, uh, totally different concept of yeah what 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 are we doing with the knowledge we have and where are we progressing to? And, um, I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, Maybe we're asking the wrong questions and that's what comes up a lot. In fact, that's what comes up a lot when you start breaking from the patriarchy of science, which is maybe we're asking the wrong questions, great questions, got the data, whatever, but maybe it was the wrong question to start with. And so that's why shit's not working out for us. Right. And So I don't even know if the way we've conceptualized science and its motivations, the way we've conceptualized singularity is even the right way to go about it. Um, But I don't know. So I can't say. The other part of that that I do want to say is I love that we as a species for 300,000 years, um, at least as far back in the writing as we can go and in every religion that we can follow that we have records of have some sort of concept of the end times or not or near. And I don't know why I don't know why as individuals and as like a collective, we keep thinking we're close to the end and the Christians are really fucking great for that. Um, If they do that, well, everybody is excited that they're going to be alive for the end times it seems like oh, by the way that was like 100% of my life for ages i'm not saying like i can talk about it cuz i was but i do have an intimate knowledge of of the bible and um yeah i don't know why we do that i don't think we're near the end i don't i think the plague was more damaging to us than our threat of nuclear weapons i could be wrong if i'm wrong we won't be here to know so <laughs> i
2: was going to say i hope there you you're go. right because mm. um yeah um so um we're starting to get towards the end so we'll wrap up with um i think we'll go with the last question from um brian eggman um who asks us uh, can you tell us a little about the photo recognition ai example you spoke about in glasgow
1: yeah so that was really fun that was showing that the science that was the other side of the failure which was the method failed as opposed to the scientists um and it was really cute i actually have the slides i won't I don't know if I I do kind of want to show you one of them, not yet. Um I just have to wait for my computer to remember that it is alive. Um yeah, so what um this was this was about t- 10, 15 years ago. And uh the US military, like many Many at the time, but they have all the money and they can waste a lot of money on failed efforts, which is why it is so important for governments to back scientific pursuits because they're the only ones with the capital and the resources to fail. You know, people like you and me just can't. We're we're a make or break from second to second, right? Yep. So um AM is coming out, and the way it goes is Afghanistan war was going on, and this was a problem that nearly everybody anywhere in an occupied territory um or in a territory that's attempting to be occupied deals with which is think about um they have they're out in the middle of the desert in in afghanistan and they purposely put their bases in really really empty spaces so they can see everybody coming if you go to the pentagon and you look at pictures of the pentagon from like When it was first built, it was completely surrounded by trees. Um, I haven't been alive when the Pentagon has been surrounded by trees because they wanted a clear vision. They realized that, oh, maybe we don't want to give places for people to hide. Uh, The movie Eon Flux actually goes into this, and that was pretty cool. I highly recommend if you're not totally grossed out by the movie, watch it again. Um, About when they're attacking the, is it the Citadel? I can't remember. Um, Watch it.
2: (laughs) Like, hey, oh, my this.
1: concept of like clear view, right? So they put their bases, they build them and the walls and they fortify them. And so if you're looking above on the map, you've got the base, and they try to limit um, the um, entrance. So usually it's just one gate on one side, one like, you know, entrance and one another. And um, they have these long roads that go out forever. I probably should have done the roads on the side, but I'm going to do it here. I already like built my mental map. So They'll have a truck coming towards one of the gates, or a vehicle coming. Usually, it's a truck, and it's driving and driving and driving. And they've got the the, the soldiers on the uh, um, manning the thing and the cameras. But more often than not, it's left to the individual to decide if that's friend or foe. And the U.S. military had this thing about um, foe always dies. Shoot to kill. That's it. You don't. If somebody's driving at you, because it had it was. The, the the prevalence of you uh um said unabomber but suicide, suicide bombers. bombers yeah so and now a lot, sometimes it wasn't even somebody in the truck they would like you know some try and like send them off whatever but anyway they can see forever and the issue is they left it up to human decision making and human decision making has to wait for that threshold of okay they're going too fast too close, they're not taking our warnings, they're not looking at the flags and shoot to kill, right? So shoot the tires out, shoot the driver out, all that kind of stuff. Um because the thing is you don't you you also need to shoot them unfortunately they got they they also have the protocols if you have to shoot them because of the technology of the bombs as well. You have to shoot them before they get close enough that even if you killed them something would go off and it would harm the base. And so it would even be before that threshold. So really ugly territory and decision-making is what we call it. So they were trying to teach these machines or they were trying to teach, they tried to write some software that would rec- recognize bad drivers versus friendly drivers. Um, and, and the thing is no matter how dark we think of the military theoretically, they still have that idea of don't kill the innocent people. And, um, it's okay to kill the guilty people, but like, maybe not to, okay. <laughs> like definitely don't kill the innocent people. And a lot of times the other side of this is these people, some of them were friendly and they'd be driving, escaping, not knowing what si- signals to look at, not knowing that they're being told to stop. And so they would accidentally kill the innocent people. So this really is an altruist, not altruistic, but an ethical effort to try and not kill innocent people and save the U S military as well. But anyway, uh, I do honor all the, I do appreciate the individual, just not the system or the, the industrial complex. All right. So there's my soapbox. That's the scene. So they're like, we have this thing called machine learning. We have the technology for visual rec- or, or or yeah, visual recognition on these cameras. We're going to try and like put those two together. So we build a bit of software that can recognize friend or foe. Okay, great. First step. First step is you got to recognize a vehicle from anything that's not a vehicle. That's the first step. And the way you do machine learning or at least the way they were doing it, there's a whole bunch of ways and who knows what Google's doing now. But um cuz they just keep that all, totally under lock and key just like the military. But at the time what they were doing was you feed the program a whole bunch of pictures of trucks and non-trucks. So, um can I share my screen? Absolutely. Okay.
2: Yeah. You should be able to. I, I, oh, I'm am I, I sharing, sharing it now? You are already sharing it, yes. Yeah.
1: Okay, I'm sharing it now. Okay, um, let's see if we do this. I didn't know I'm sharing my screen. Um, which screen are you seeing now?
2: Your setup screen.
1: My you, setup screen. Yeah. Your, that's, that's fine, screen. that's fine. I just want to get here. I just look at my setup screen. Don't Don't pay attention to anything else. <laughs> And so what they would do is they would say, truck, look at all these features. And then they would give something else, you know, that would, they were trying to also mimic what might be in the space, but also not in the space. And so they were like, this is not a truck. This is not a truck. Um, Let's keep going. This is a truck. These are the features. This is a truck. These are the features. This is a truck. These are the features. This is not a truck. This is not a truck. This is a truck. You know, so it would just go over and over and over and over and over. And so let me get out of here. And um, are you still seeing my screen? Okay, so it would just feed hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pictures and say, This is, this is not a truck. And then it would say, These are the features of a truck. And then it would say, Look at this, note and 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 teach it to find the features and not find the features. I'm using um human thought language because we don't really necessarily have all the language yet to understand what artificial knowledge is. <clears throat> and in the ends, what actually got pushed out and published because it was so fantastic was the very um, first recognized outcome was about ninety percent accuracy. Of once they started testing the system, it was ninety percent, ninety-seven percent ish, and high nineties percent accurate for what was a truck, a vehicle, if you will, and not. And uh, that's just like much like Lacour's study unheard of like this is not how it works nobody nails it the first time around and so um i pulled these pictures up because it took another scientist i think another team stepping in and saying um because they kept testing and testing and testing and kept coming out and coming out and they were like yeah 96 97 98 95 they were all in there and they're like we are going to nail this now we can get to the part of like shoot or not shoot right and but the team was still like, this is still sus, you know, it's not quite hitting us. And it was another team that came in that saw a variable that nobody else had seen up to that point because we're biased human beings and we still kinda wanna see what we wanna see. And this um, screen that I have up um, illustrates as best as I could um, re-engineer. What they did was they accidentally used only real truck pictures, um, to train for trucks. and then they any anytime you're training machine learning and you've got you need to know this variable and everything that's not this variable, the other category is always going to be di- by default bigger um than the variable that you're trying to teach. And um that meant that they had a lot more ver- a lot more um, variety um and noise that they could bring in. And um one of the things they accidentally did with the truck, side of the variable was they only showed pictures real pictures more much like this um uh, soldier with the truck at the gate real pictures and they were all at night because it's military and they're taking pictures of the shed at night so what the machine learning was picking up was dark pictures uh-huh. versus light pictures. Uh-huh. so it was nailing it uh, 97 97 of the time and when they ran the numbers to test it they're like oh yeah about you know 99 to 100 percent of these pictures are dark and you know versus light so that's what I was picking up so I thought that was a really great study I particularly like that somehow that got out of the military iron curtain so I appreciate that too
2: I was quite I was quite surprised to see the toy truck not on the truck size because surely that still has the same like shapes and angles as the truck it still has the two wheels in the wrap surprised right. it didn't get caught as a truck which obviously it wasn't dark which is why it didn't pick up the toy truck <laughs> as a truck
1: right right well there's a line in a movie from years ago no i don't remember what movie it is but um it was legitimate we sat around um because i i actively decided not to work for the military that was everybody where i grow up works for the military and a lot of scientists in my position end up working for the military and i probably would if i would stayed but um they um it was in a movie and that's why i put the kids with the ice cream because it was like how can you teach if we barely understand how cognition works and how human minds work how can we create a system that can separate a child or an innocent person holding random objects versus somebody holding a threatening object like a gun or a knife you know and it had to do with um you know mounted auto automatic Um, weaponry and stuff and the truth was nobody had an answer for that
2: the other thing that came to my mind with that is they were trying to detect threats coming towards the base surely a human being can detect a lorry it's whether or not it's a threat that's more of an issue than is it a lorry
1: well see first you have to teach it to know what's coming at you and you got to think when you're programming you're starting with a tabula rasa there's nothing there And this program and software will only know what you tell it. So you would literally have to teach it every, well, teach, but you do, you have to tell it everything. And the machine learning part is the magic part because that's when it starts making connections that you don't have to tell it to make. You just told it the rules to then make those connections. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, absolutely fantastic talk. Thank you so much. Brilliant Q and A. Absolutely loved it. Um, I've seen some lovely comments in the uh, chat. So Seems like everybody's enjoyed it.
0: That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thulabora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.